Good morning, church family. Uh, A few years ago, somebody had this brilliant idea uh, that people like the game Jenga. So what we ought to do is we ought to make Jenga, but with two by fours. And so they made this game called Giant Jenga. Um, And if you haven't played Giant Jenga, uh, the first time you do, just steer clear of the tower as it's coming down. That's a lot of weight. Uh, two by four is falling on your foot and hand and head is not a fun thing. Um, and we, we actually played this game together at a volunteer appreciation uh, dinner a couple years ago. Uh, I know our students play it together. Um, and I, I, think there, I think this is the one thing that I've noticed. There's always the one guy, it's always a guy, uh, who takes, who, who immediately, first turn, first two turns, goes in, removes the lowest block that he can remove, and then gets on the other side the next turn and removes the other block from that. And, and so the whole tower is balancing on one two by four. Uh, and that is exciting. Um, and it makes the game go fast uh, because the crash is coming. Uh, this past year for, for many people has felt like a big wobbly tower. Uh, like if a strong wind came, if the right a political moment or another wave of COVID, another loss of a loved one, our lives might just end up in a rubble on the ground. Uh, anxiety and worry have caused many um, to bundle up and to stay indoors. Anxiety and worry has caused others to build up like a teapot full of angst and anger. And yet the promise that we read last week is that you, you are citizens of heaven. And today Paul is gonna say in our passage, if heaven is your home, that you can stand firm. There are forces that are gonna press against you from all sides. There's worries and anxieties that are all around. But the people of God, this, this little outpost here of the kingdom of heaven, you Redeemer Church, the citizens of heaven, he says, you can hang on. You can stand firm. Life's gonna wear you down. And many around you are gonna despair. But by God's grace, not you. Not you, you're gonna make it. You're gonna stand firm. This is such an encouraging text of scripture uh, that really, I believe, paints a vision of the unshakable life uh, that belongs to God's people. And as we walk through the text, I want us to see four enduring marks that that belong to citizens of heaven. Number one, uncommon unity. Number two, unshakable rejoicing. Number three, unexplainable peace. And then number four, the unmatched savior. Let me pray for us. Father, would you quiet our hearts? Would you... Would you quiet the, the voices, uh, all the worries and the anxieties that we're, that we're even, even entertaining right this moment? Would you help us to be still and to look to you as God? And will we hear from your word? Would we, by your spirit, would you help implant your word in our heart that it might bear fruit? And would you, would you change us by the gospel? Would you change us by your spirit? We need your help. We always need your help. Would you give it to us this morning, we ask, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Number one, uncommon unity. The citizens of heaven have uncommon unity. 
Paul starts it in verse one. So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, as citizens of heaven, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So here's here's what that looked like. He's gonna show us. Here's what it looks like for citizens of heaven to stand firm in the Lord. Here's the first mark of a citizen of heaven. You ready? This is huge. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That was unexpected, right? That was not the turn that we were expecting from Paul. You want to stand firm in the Lord? These two ladies need to get along. They need to agree. So, so what's going on here? And why is this even here? Uh, remember, remember how public this, this is, right? Uh, this whole church is gathered uh, to, read, uh, to read this letter from their beloved friend, Paul. And they've gathered together. And can you imagine as you heard the letter being read, if you heard your name out loud, right? I mean, this is scary stuff. Uh, hey, I just want the whole church to know that uh, Josh and Kim, you guys really need to get your marriage work on, all right? I mean, that, that, would, be, that would be terrifying, right? Sorry, guys. Uh, every, your, your marriage is wonderful from everything. I, it's, I'm so proud of you guys. I love y'all. Um, but, but terrifying, right? To hear your name read aloud. And, and, but here's what we know. We know these are women's names. Uh, and those of you who are expecting have a baby on the way, uh, you know, maybe give it a shot. They're, the old names are coming back. That's what they keep saying. So Euodia, um, just try it. We need one in the nursery. Uh, but what else do we know? We know they're Christians. They're likely leaders. Paul says they've contended for the gospel at his side. Some believe these women uh, each hosted churches in Philippi in their own homes. And so what's their disagreement? We really don't know, Uh, which is significant, I think. Uh, Because when we uh, see Paul highlight things like this in the scriptures, Paul is not, he's not shy about calling out doctrinal problems, is he? We've seen how he handles those. He, he will call out false teaching, false doctrine, threats to the gospel. And Paul also doesn't shy away from calling out specific sins when he writes to the churches. So, so I, I think it's, it's unlikely that this is a, a doctrinal problem. And I think this is unlikely this is a, a, an overt issue of sin. And we see these are leaders in the church. So these aren't just people that have snuck in amongst the sheep. So what is the issue? We really don't know for sure. But Paul, I think, is making a a point very clear to us that the unity of these two women is way more important than you think. And whatever their issue, I think we need to see ourselves in them. Even the healthiest of churches will have conflicts. Relationships will become frayed and they will need reconciliation If it hasn't happened for you at Redeemer, it will. But unreconciled disagreements between brothers and sisters over non-eternal matters, it will destroy the church. It will subvert the message of the gospel. Paul says their names are in the book of life. By his blood, Jesus united us to the Father. He united them. And by his spirit, he unites us together. There are no enemies, no barriers in heaven, no barriers to our fellowship there. And if the church is this outpost of the heavenly city, then it is our duty to preserve unity with one another here. Sadly, we won't experience perfect fellowship here. 
There is still sin. There is still unrepentance. Our sinful nature still gets in the way, but we strive for it. He says they need to agree in the Lord. This is resonating from chapter two when we're told to have the same mind as Christ, to be together intent on one purpose. For Christians to hate or despise one another, this is, this is heresy. It is scandal in the church. Is disunity your practice? Do you tolerate it in your circles? And in case you're tempted to stand on the outside and think, well, you know, just, we'll just let those two old ladies, they'll just squabble with each other. No, these are gospel women, precious saints, laborers for Jesus, and they are loved by him. Now, when you see conflict, you're to run in. You're to bring peace. We can't stand aloof when uh, we encounter disagreements in the church. That's what Paul says in verse three. He says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who've contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. I think this true partner is actually a person. I think in, in some translations, you'll actually see his name, uh, Syzygos. Uh, this is, uh, many of the commentators point us to, uh, uh, they're not certain, but they think this is actually a person, a guy. And Paul makes that appeal to him. Syzygos, jump in here. These ladies, they're in the book of life. They, they're in the family of God. And so Paul's appealing to this man. And, and I think he's making the same appeal to us. Step in and help. He doesn't say step in and penalize these women. No, help them. Remind them of who they are. They're ambassadors for Christ. They're, they're sisters together in the kingdom. They're sinners forgiven by Jesus. So point them back to him so that they might be reconciled to each other. Now, I know it's uh, 2021 uh, and there aren't many disagreements happening right now between Christians uh, over, gospel, over non-gospel issues. Are there? Are you guys aware of some? Okay, there are a few. Um, I, well, I guess I was wrong. Um, so I guess I should bring this up. I was hes going to hesitate. Uh, it's right. It's happening. And I, I praise the Lord that I don't hear a lot of it in our church family. I, I, I'm thankful for that. But guys, it's swirling around us. Churches are losing their witness, hating one another, forsaking uh, what Paul said, for, that, that we're to forget what's behind us. They were to count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Instead, folks are content to trade the riches of knowing Christ for the winning of arguments. And so often, I think it's even being done so under the guise of Christian conviction. And I'm seeing it. It's all over the place. You're seeing it. It's everywhere on all issues. People would rather write a takedown article or start a discernment blog to attack an otherwise like-minded brother or sister than to proclaim the riches of Christ himself. Paul says in Romans, to outdo one another in showing honor, and instead, many Christians are outdoing one another in insult. And not only that, some are even adopting the world's language to do so. There are some who are who are calling their brothers and sisters names like Marxists, supremacists, sheeple, 
Maskers, anti-maskers, woke, racist, anti-vaxxers, vaxxers. Guys, this is not the way of Jesus. Love requires that we hope all things, that we seek to understand one another. It is much easier to label an ideological opponent than it is to move toward one as a brother or a sister. Now, don't, don't hear me wrongly. We must still think wisely about the issues of our day. The elders are, are, have been praying and are discussing how do we continue to provide opportunities for us as a body to process through how to see cultural, current cultural issues in light of God's word, in light of the gospel. But I would urge you, don't fall for the spirit of the age. The world is urging you to throw grenades at each other, to shelter in foxholes where, where nobody disagrees and just lob them. Don't get entangled in such affairs. As we run the race, as Paul encourages Timothy, we must do so by locking arms with each other. Ask questions. If you disagree with a brother or sister, ask them a question. When you talk about third and fourth level issues of, of dis Christian disagreement, that's okay. Such disagreements will happen. And this is what happens in, in the multifaceted, every nation, tribe, tongue, culture, the chosen race, holy nation that is the church. It happens. Ask questions of one another, but then lock arms in the Lord. Agree in the Lord, Paul says. Be of the same mind about our risen king. When we do this, when we agree in the Lord, our unity will be uncommon. Jesus will be made much of. Even today, have you allowed the frustration uh, that you feel or the preferences that you have uh, to break your fellowship with a brother or a sister? Are you waiting for them to make the first move? Don't do it. Humble yourself. Go to them. Run to the tension. Jesus will meet you both there. What a testimony of the spirit of God. If after this service, you called a brother or a sister from whom you have grown distant and cold and you, or you just sent him a text and said, I love you, I miss you. I'm praying the Lord's blessing on your life. I can't wait to see you again. This would be the flavor of heaven, a mark of the citizens of heaven. A second mark is number two, unshakable rejoicing. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. What a sentence, right? <laughs> Be joyful in God, done, easy, no problem. Always, oh man, that's tough. Always, this would be a lot easier if it just stopped before always. Be joyful in God frequently, done. Rejoice when the kids obey, easy. Uh, when money is plentiful and conflicts are gone, great. I mean, it's no small thing that he's mentioning rejoicing in the Lord after talking about a conflict. Uh, and then just in case you missed it for the first time, I'll say it again, be joyful in God. Rejoice in the Lord. Yes, even when the cancer comes, even when the COVID hospitalization happens, rejoice in the Lord. On the service, this sounds a little like the put on a happy face version of Christianity. The don't worry, be happy guides to the Christian life. And, and maybe for some of you, 
Maybe that's what you've heard. Like maybe you've been around churches or teaching uh, that has has given that sort of feel good, prosperity laden uh, mumbo jumbo that Jesus wants you just wants you to be happy. That kind of bumper sticker faith, these these trite sayings that don't have much meaning, uh, and and I really I just don't I don't think that resonates with any of us, and I don't think it resonated with Paul either. Let's think for just a minute, what was Paul up to as he wrote? Where is he as he writes? He's two years in, over two years in, in a jail sentence in Rome, unsure whether he'll be free again. For over a decade, he's made regular trips to places where people hate him. And when he shows up, what does he get? Beatings. He's kicked out of towns. He's, have, he's, he's snuck out by his friends so that he won't be killed. He's got no money, tons of opposition. He has no dream of retirement. He's got no smartphone, no Netflix, uh, often few friends. And he does it all to proclaim the risen Christ. And as he writes to this little church that he planted, to his dear friends at Philippi, he writes with a shackle attached to his leg. And he says to them, and he says to us, you can rejoice you can rejoice always. I can rejoice here in jail. Not quite the prosperity gospel, is it? Rejoicing isn't just commanded by God. It's, always, it's also possible because of God. Why? Because our joy is not in a circumstance. It's joy in the Lord. It's not joy in release from prison. It's joy in the Lord in prison. It's not, uh, it's not joy when today was good joy. He is always worthy, always good, always loving, always sovereign, always with us. And the gospel is always true. The world will constantly tempt you to despair. And I think the temptation for this church uh, here at Philippi would have been great. They're seeing Paul's persecution and they're fearing, man, the same thing may be coming for me. I may be bound for exile, for, for imprisonment or even worse. And here's Paul with chains rattling as he's writing this letter. With each stroke of the pen, he's, he's saying, with my chains, rejoice. You can do it. I can rejoice. You can rejoice in the Lord. But he goes further in verse five. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. I remember first studying this verse uh, and feeling like this was such a strange word right in the middle of the passage. In fact, uh, it's even weirder in the ESV uh, when I first saw that it said, let your reasonableness be known to all. Uh, Like, okay, so let's just let everyone know how reasonable you are. That just sounds not very spiritual. This guy's just super reasonable. That's really neat. Um, Like, what... (laughs) And, and, and so reasonable didn't really strike, a, hit, hit, a, hit a chord. And then we began to live in the age of outrage, right? And social media exploded or imploded, depending upon how you look at it. And I, I think the Lord is all showing us that reasonable, gentle people in the midst of chaos and outrage are like oxygen. They're like oxygen underwater, this is one of those, those places, I think, with this word where the translators have kind of wrestled with how to, how to get it to the English. Uh, you, different translations will say words like, 
Let your gentleness be known, your graciousness, your reasonableness, your moderation, your forbearance. Uh, and commentators kind of settled in. This, this seems to be pointing at some sort of calmness, steadiness, contentment. Calvin refers to this word as equanimity, which just means someone who's calm in the midst of chaos. And this is Jesus, right? Sleeping in the boat when the storm is raging. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your graciousness, your, your steadiness, your gentleness, your unshakable contentment be known to everyone. Years ago, I heard Tim Keller refer to this as radical evenness. He pointed to the story in Luke 10 uh, when Jesus sends out the disciples. You guys remember the story? Uh, they had just come back from uh, a mission and Luke describes it like this. He says that they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're going, man, that was amazing. Demons are obeying us. It's awesome. And, and Jesus doesn't go, that was pretty great, wasn't it? Like that wasn't how he responded. No, he turns it back, on, back around on him and he says, Look, I've given you authority. I've given you power over the enemy. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I think what Jesus is saying is, today was great, wasn't it? But they, all, they won't all be great. The days won't always be like that. He knows what they're going to face soon. For some of them, it will be jail, it will be persecution, beatings like Paul. For others, it will be floggings and even crucifixion. So it was a good day of ministry, but good days are not ultimate. Circumstances can't be ultimate. They can't be the ground of our rejoicing because if they are, our rejoicing can't be always. Circumstances will change, but your name is written in heaven. If you are in Christ, rejoice in that. Rejoice in the sureness of your foundation in Jesus. If you've, been, if you've been around for a while, you may have heard me share this John Newton quote before. I love this. I think it so perfectly highlights this sort of unshakable joy. Newton, the great hymn writer, said this. He said, if we really knew the future glory for us, it would make the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. That's so great. And that's why Christians don't grieve the way the world grieves. Because even when we grieve, we, we know nothing can take me from Jesus. Nothing can separate me from him. Even the worst time, I can, I can bear underneath it. And on the flip side, we, we don't rejoice the same way the world rejoices. I remember, uh, just on a small scale, I remember when I was in college, uh, I, I went to LSU. Uh, we loved going to the football games. And like, there, was like this, there was like this spirit on the campus. Like when the, when the football team won, it was as though like everyone was like, hey, how you doing? Going to class, you know? And like the next, like, and they lose, it's like, whatever. You know, like the whole, it's just the next few days. It's just like, it's, and, and it was a football game, right? Uh, thankfully, uh, I feel like I've grown up since then. Um, not so crushed by things like that, right? This is maturity. I, I pray that the Lord is continuing to bring about. Uh, but a Christian is able to see that when something really good happens, success at work, a new home, a wonderful vacation, a great day with family, a Christian can say, what a gift. 
What a gift. But even if it's gone tomorrow, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. And isn't that the kind of person that you want to be around? That when difficulty hits them, when you go visit them in the hospital, that they're the one encouraging you. They're the one reminding you, God's still good. He's got it. He's taking care of me. They're not wallowing wallowing in misery and complaining. The elders got to go pray for a brother in our church recently and uh, he barely had the strength to stand. He wasn't able to really get out of his chair. And, uh, but after we spent time praying for him, he, he was like, I want to pray for you guys. And so he stands up out of his chair and I mean, a little shaky. And um, we're like, is this okay? Like looking at his wife, like, should he be doing this? Um, and he is, uh, and he proceeds to pray over us, to pray for God, to, to minister to us by his spirit, to pray for us to remember the promises of God. How is that possible? I think it's because of what he says at the end of verse five. He says, let your graciousness be known to all. How? Because the Lord is near. Do you ever have days where you just go, you look around and you just go, man, this world doesn't feel right. Probably a lot. This world doesn't feel quite like home. Even on a, on a good morning, even on a good day, even as the weather is improving outside, even on a great morning like this when we uh, gather to sing of God's goodness together and are here with our church family, there are just realities and anxieties that just won't leave our mind, Right? And the current struggles, they just don't completely fade. The Lord is near. No bad thing can take him away from you. He is with you now. He will be with you forever. There is an eternity coming where Jesus will make all things new and right for those who are his. Or peace will be the air that you breathe. Or pain and discouragement will be gone. And that nearness of God, that, that means now your joy can be unshakable. Number three, unexplainable peace. We have unexplainable peace. He goes on in verse six and says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Man, it's too bad Paul wasn't a little more, like didn't overstate these things, just a little more. Rejoice always. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Uh, Is this even possible? Worry about nothing? Like this is what we do. Uh, This is who we are. We worry. We live in an anxious age. Many people would use this verse and point to this just just to, to point out and teach of the exceeding sinfulness of anxiety. The anxiousness, worrying. Yeah, are, are, these, are these sinful? Yes, in so much as our worrying and anxiety encroaches on our trust in God. Some of us can't imagine an entire hour without anxiety creeping in. It's, it's, it's insidious. And in anxiety, it does. It, it keeps us from seeing things rightly. It keeps us from seeing God and our situations in the right way. It clouds reality. Paul says here, the Lord is near, and anxiety says he's far. He doesn't care. Anxiety says, I I need control. But reality says only God is sovereign. Only he is in control. Anxiety says, I must care about this because God doesn't. 
I can improve and add to my life and my days by worrying. But reality says, it's only by God's care that you have any days at all. Scripture says he's numbered them. He's God and we are not, right? And anxiety obscures that truth. So what are we to do? Look, look at the rest of verse six. Don't worry about anything, but at everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I think maybe more than a warning, more than an unrestrained teaching about the exceeding sinfulness of anxiety, certainly those things are here, but more than any of those things, I think this is an offer. I know you're worried. So come to me, he's saying. Pray about everything. And in verse seven, in place of your worries, you know what I'm gonna give you? I'm gonna give you peace. It's an offer. And he makes it to you and to me. The one who makes the earth turn on its axis. He looks at us just as he looked at his disciples the night before his death and says, he said to them and he says to us, my peace be with you. I know you're worried. I know you have many cares. But cast your anxieties, cast your cares on me, First Peter says. In ministering to many families in and around our church who have walked through the foster care and adoption process, I've heard a variation of a similar story uh, several times. And it's the story that goes like this. It's, it's a story of, of a boy who comes into a new home having been through a lot of trauma, a lot of anxiety, a lot of distrust. And even though he's sleeping in a home that was prepared for him, in a bed that someone bought for him, eating meals around a family table that he was invited to for the first time in his life, now a part of a family that wants to love and to care for him. And yet still, after dinner or late at night, He'll sneak food up to his bedroom, hiding it in a closet, hiding it under his bed. Why? Because his mind can't process being cared for. All of his life trying to care for himself. All of his life trying to think ahead, to sneak or even to steal food or money, to save it for later. Because you never knew when there would be no meal. And I want you just to imagine the conversation as that father and that mother, as they look at their child that they've brought into their family, that they've rearranged their lives for, how should they respond to his anxieties? How would they respond to their anxious child who they find hoarding food, taking his provision in his own hands? Should they be stern? You must stop worrying. I bought that food. You stop stealing that food from me. I bought that. It's yours. You, you stop that. Or should they, under the tender compassion of, of a mother and a father, should they crawl on the floor with their, their child and reassure him, son, what's ours is yours. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You can rest here. You can breathe here. And doesn't Jesus offer that to his kids? 
Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 55, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. So the command today, don't worry about anything. It's an offer. Where, where, where you are anxious, the Lord is saying to you, come to me. Bring your burden to me and I will give you peace. And so how does he invite us to himself? Don't worry about anything, but in everything, prayer. In everything, prayer. So is this, is this okay, Lord? Do I go with pinto beans or black beans in my Chipotle bowl? Like, help me out, Lord. I need to ask you this question. Um, I think we can get kind of silly, right? And everything, prayer. Uh, but I think pretty plainly what is being said here is, if it is a care of yours, then it is a care of God's. Calvin said, our cares must become the raw material of our prayers. My, my wife is so gracious in my life in this regard. Often I will be talking about, uh, talking with her about a concern for our family or a concern uh, for the church and she'll graciously let me finish talking and then she'll ask the question that I almost know is coming right before it comes out of her mouth. Are you praying about that? <sighs> of course not, I'm, just, I'm a pastor. Are you praying about that? No, oh, I need to pray. I need the reminder. I need to hear it. I need to be told, go to your father. What's worrying you today? Are you praying? What keeps you up thinking at night? Do you pray about it? Is your love for Jesus, is it grown stale? Are you praying about that? Are you worried for one of your children? Are you praying? Is a friend in the hospital with COVID? Are you praying? Is discipline hard to come by? Pray about it. Is your family member's heart still hard toward the gospel? Pray. Moment by moment, like breathing. Pray. God, I need you again now. I need you again now. Help me. Help me. The elders are asking uh, the Lord. We, we've, we've been really going and, and, and saying, God, would you help us? We need to be better at prayer. By God's, by God's grace, I feel like he's, he's growing that fruit in our, in our church family and we wanna grow it more. We want, to be, we want to be a praying church because we know we're helpless. Apart from his work, we are helpless. We have no power. Our church has no power apart from him. We need him every minute, so we must pray. In everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I don't think Paul has, I don't think he's laying out a theology of prayer here, but he does mention three aspects of prayer, and I, I'm gonna hit them real fast. Prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. Prayer, this is, this is worship. This is going to him with our praise and, and telling him how great he is. This is communing with him. This is being with the Father. This is talking with him. If you don't know how to talk to, to God, just talk to him like he's your father, like, he, like, like he's one who loves you better than anyone could. Thank him. Praise him. Tell him how great he is. 
What a gift to sit with him. Petition. This is simply asking him for things. When you talk to your father, you get to ask him for things. Be an asker. We're so prone to think that our little things, our little concerns in life are not a concern to God. They're not a big deal to God. Guess what? None of it's a big deal to God. He's a big deal. He's infinite. It's all small to him. He can take care of all of it. And yet, and yet somehow it all matters to him. Our father cares for us. Like the psalmist, we are humbled. We should be saying things like, who are we that you are mindful of us? God, I don't know why, but you care for me. You're a good father. Me personally, I'm sometimes too busy to listen to the requests of my children. Sorry, my children that are here in the service. Because I'm not a perfect father. But we have a perfect father. And prayer are asking him of things. It's not an intrusion on him. He's not bothered by it. He wants us to ask. He invites us to ask. So prayer, petition, and now do it with thanksgiving. This might be the most amazing part, right? That even as we ask, we're thanking him before he even answers. It would be, it would be presumptuous and rude if I asked you for something and thanked you before you answered. Can you help me build a fence? Thank you, right? That doesn't go over well, right? Hey, wait, I'm busy. I don't know. I never build a fence. Um, I didn't even answer. It would be presumptuous for me to do that with you, but it's not presumptuous with God. We ask him with thanksgiving. Why? Because he's good? Yes. Because he's faithful? Of course. But mostly because we know he hears us and we know his answer will be good. That doesn't mean we know what the answer is. Tim Keller says that that when we ask with thanksgiving, we're thanking God in advance for the entire range of possible outcomes. That God, whatever you give me, I I know that's best. And that may feel like a cop-out. Yeah, but you told us to ask. We are to ask. But walking with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death is better than walking on high ground without him. This is the prayer of Jesus. Father, not my will, but yours. These sorts of prayers, these are our acknowledgement that God, you, you may not answer the way that I want you to, the way that I think you should, but I thank you anyway, because your answer is better than the one I could dream up. And I don't even know how it is. And so we trust him. And when we go to the Father, here's the promise in verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a maybe, this is a promise. If you pray, he will protect your heart. He will protect your mind. He'll give you his peace. This is actually a military word. As you pray, the battalion of God's peace will now stand guard at the door of your heart, at the door of your mind. Your anxious heart, your worried mind, they can rest. Let's, let's not forsake this incredible promise. Like there, there are no other shortcuts to this sort of peace from God. Checking the bank account one more time, that's not gonna give you peace. Sending one more text message or, or, or finishing that one last barb in your argument on Facebook, no peace is in that. 
No, pray. And this is even a promise that prayer will bring a speedy solution. The promise is that God is the solution. The peace of God, which doesn't make sense, will be with you. And this sort of peace, that's gonna baffle people. It will baffle your friends. How are you calm? They'll ask. How can you sleep? How are you not losing it? They'll wanna know. And you'll say, I don't even know. I don't even know. I just know that God's with me. There may be no greater megaphone, I think, for the goodness of God than a Christian who is walking through pain and suffering, who is experiencing the peace of God. And then the final mark of a citizen of heaven, number four, we look to the unmatched savior. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So we don't just pray and go back to searching WebMD, right back to our worries, right back to our anxieties. No, in place of our anxieties, he gives us something new. He gives us something new to dwell on, something our minds can rehearse. Better yet, he gives us someone to think about, one who is true, one who is honorable, one who is just and pure, lovely and commendable. I used to just kind of glaze over this part of this passage. Uh, it just kind of felt like, you know, the Von Trapp plan to happy thoughts, you know, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Just think of your favorite things and you won't feel so bad. Um, but, but when we cast our worries on the Father, we need something else to fill our thought life. So what do the people of peace dwell on? Whatever is true. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. Whatever is just. Our just king. He makes the lame to walk. He is the righteous forgiver of sin. Whatever is pure. Jesus, the purity of God, the blameless one. Whatever is excellent, praiseworthy. What more excellent one is there? More praiseworthy one is there than one who became sin for us. What an excellent savior. He can only offer peace because he gave himself to the most anxiety-inducing pain and loss imaginable. And he did it freely so that you might experience peace. And so right now, our risen king, he's near you in your pain. He's near you in your worries. So take your cares to him. Rest in him. And the God of peace, Paul said, he will be with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you. We praise you that we, that we have an offer of peace that we could not conjure up. That apart from your kindness in our life, apart from your presence in our life, your nearness to us, that we would be a mess. Father, would you make us a praying people? Would you make us people who, when cares arise in our heart, when worries come, when anxieties come, that, that you would be the one we go to talk to? And Father, we, we ask that you, would, that you would make this promise a reality to us, that we would know your peace. The peace that comes from Jesus. 
Father, we love you. Would you, would you lead us now as your children to walk in peace? We pray this in Christ's name.